0: Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm the producer of the show. And before we go any further, I want to introduce our host, because I have a question for him, Ian Cron. Ian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, my brother. I'm glad to see uh you Based on your background, it looks like you're still in prison. I'm just wondering when you're getting out.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay, so I have a little family news for you, but before I go there, I want you to tell me a little bit about this right here.
1: Oh. <laughs> well, Bora, my new... Keep holding it up. Keep holding up the product. Yes. Okay, yes. Bora. That is my new favorite sparkling drink water in part because it is... The newest, latest, and I mean greatest sparkling drink on the market created by my son-in-law and daughter. It's already in 370 stores and it's growing exponentially. That You, you know what you're holding right there? My retirement.
0: Tell me. <laughs> literally Ian had no idea I was going to do this for those of you that are listening to us Orabora, it's a drink and I just had my first one and it's amazing man I love this wasn't that good which one did you have zero sugar zero calories do which what which one did you have cactus rose cactus rose cactus rose right I mean the stuff is killer right so good yeah it's really good so congratulations on that and I have a little bit of news of my own so Justice who has been on the show. He's an Enneagram 6. He entered two weeks ago now. There's a film festival. It's all around the world. 48-hour film festival. He and his team entered in Nashville, and they won for the whole South. Wow. Yeah, they're up. Today was the final judging, so we don't know the results, but today they're up against LA, and it'll be all over the world that he'll be going up against next. So pretty amazing. So I'm proud of him. Pretty cool stuff. We have an amazing guest today. We I'm pumped about this show. We,
1: yes, I, I am pumped about this show as well. I, I it was one of the most interesting, delightful, fast paced, uh, deep conversations I've had in a very, very long time about the Enneagram, particularly about Enneagram sevens, but well beyond. Enneagram sevens. We, uh, it's with Blake Mikoski, the founder of Tom's Shoes, and um, mm-hmm. what a what a remarkable human being and what a fantastic conversation.
0: Amazing, and he has a new company made for it, which we talk about a little bit in the show and some other things that he has done and is doing. But I feel so inspired as a four, as a human being. It doesn't matter what number you are, you're gonna love this. Show.
1: Well, listen, if he raised the spirits of a four, everybody hang in there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. So here we go. Blake Mykowski.
1: Blake Mykowski, welcome to Typology.
2: Thanks for having me on, Ian.
1: Man, I have looked forward to this conversation for so long, in part because I follow you on Instagram and you're living my life.
2: well i definitely would say i'm living my best life i uh i've been very blessed and i get to spend a lot of time with my kids and a lot of time outdoors and um it just uh well it will get into why that's so important based on my type so uh it'll make more sense in a few minutes
1: okay i just want to return this i want you to give back my life (laughs) (laughs) just give it back to me that's all i want to ask I see you skiing, I see you surfing, I see you horseback riding, I see you rock climbing. Life outdoors is a pretty big theme for you, man.
2: It is, it is, and it always has been. You know, I grew up being a really competitive tennis player, so I was much more focused in my outdoor activity with one sport, but once I realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, I kind of turned that passion for athleticism and being outdoors to a myriad of uh, activities. And one thing I learned from um, Yvonne Chenard, who's the founder of Patagonia, he's, he really has this great philosophy around activities of you can actually get to about 75% of your proficiency um, it, you know, pretty quickly, and you can enjoy a lot of the things that way, first trying to master something, and then you have to give your whole life to it. Um, And so I've kind of went from the mastery philosophy when I was age ten to say twenty to uh, this idea of I'm really happy being seventy five percent of my potential proficiency in many activities.
1: Wow, I think that's pretty wise. I think that's pretty wise. So let's just jump right in on some Enneagram stuff. Okay. Great. So when did you first learn about the Enneagram, and how did you determine your type?
2: Yeah, so it's it's so interesting. I was actually being interviewed um I don't know, it, it was I think it was for Esquire magazine or GQ, one of the men's magazines. And uh the the interviewer came to my ranch here in Jackson Hole. This is 2 years ago. And um at the end of the interview, he said, "Oh, by the way, what type are you?" And I was like, "Blood type?" And he's like, "No, Enneagram." <laughs> and uh, and he, and, he, and he just, Enneagram rolled off his tongue as if like that was the most common uh, thing to know. And I had never heard of the Enneagram. And, um, and so I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he, his, he was like so excited to share with me as so many people who have, you know, benefited from the Enneagram work. And uh, he said, well, it's this test and, uh, duh, and this, you know, this system. And he started explaining it. And, uh, and I was like, okay, well, like I'm, I'm interested in that. And he knew. Um, through interviewing me that I um, had uh, a love for Richard Rohr. And so he said, actually, um, Richard Rohr wrote a book about the Enneagram. And so I would recommend taking the test and getting the book simultaneously. And I did exactly that. I ordered the book on Amazon the next day. I went to the Enneagram Institute and took the test Um, and like within a week I was deep, uh, deep into, um, discovering my type. But the interesting thing about my type was I was, um, I was almost, almost tied between a seven and a three. And when I read both of them, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, but what really helped me understand that I was actually a seven and not a three was, you know, from my understanding, uh, the three, the achiever you know, their kind of main fear in life uh, was failure. And a lot of the drive that they had was to get status and show other people their success. Um, where the seven, oftentimes, many sevens became entrepreneurs and were very driven, but their main drive was for freedom. And their main fear was boredom. And that resonated so much with me. Like I never started any companies. To make money or to you know impress others, it was all that I wanted to have my own freedom. And I also was you know deeply afraid of being bored from a vocational standpoint. And so as soon as I had that distinction, um, I was a hundred percent clear that I was a seven, not a three.
1: Hmm. What does free? I, let me right away. I want to ask you the question: What does freedom mean to you?
2: Yeah, it's such a great question, and that the answer to that is so. Nuanced, I think, and and changing, and as as my kind of spiritual growth continues to unfold every minute of every day, I think today I would answer freedom is especially in with regard to my journey as a seven um, is really um, being present, not having the manic. Um, need to continue to plan the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, but freedom is really being content in the present moment and content with what I have and what I have is enough. And I personally am enough um, because sevens um, constantly are wanting more, you know, our, 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 kind of chief sin, if you will, is gluttony. Um, and, and so we are, constantly looking to the next thing I love one of the jokes and one of the books I've read about how sevens go on vacation to plan their next vacation (laughs) Um, so and I resonate with that like literally it's amazing how oftentimes I've been at the last two days of a vacation and like get out my calendar and start playing the next one so freedom to me is actually not being a slave to the patterns uh, that typically drive a seven and actually being content with moderation, um, you know, with constraint, uh, with presence. Um, and uh, that's hard because I love planning stuff. I love doing things. So um, where I am on my journey right now, and this is why I was so excited to come on on your podcast, because I think articulating it out loud helps in your own growth. Um, is where I'm on my journey right now is I've recognized what kind of the the holy truth is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm working every day towards it. But I also am having compassion to myself, knowing that um, I'm still going to be a planner. I'm still going to be uh, an adventurer. But how can I not use those patterns to distract myself From where I might find a deeper contentment and joy and that is focusing on enough I have right now and really being present.
1: Hmm. So uh, I don't want to be picky but as a therapist I pick up on funny little things in what people say. So you now have used the word presence and present about I think about eight times in the last uh, two sentences and it's a very important word for sevens. Um, It's Probably, you know, uh, what we counsel sevens most to do. And it's rather sad because actually from a spiritual perspective, presence is something that people of every type should be seeking after. It's just more of a challenge in some ways for the monkey mind of the seven to achieve. Like like a five, like fives make great Zen monks, actually. They, They have sort of this... Like onboard equipment, you know, that says, "Oh, non-attachment. Watch this." You know, yeah. it's like yeah. here they go. So I want to know now, now that I know uh, other words, uh, the meaning of other words, like freedom in your life. What does presence mean?
2: Well, I mean, it's so important to me that you're going to laugh, and I'm glad we're on a Zoom call. See if I can move these bracelets. I have literally tattooed it to my wrist be present. (laughs) Um, So that's...
1: Hey man, you're taking this crap seriously. (laughs) Yeah, this is how committed I am.
2: um, For anyone who's uh, questioning this. Um, You know, I would say for me, um, being present is being... Another uh, word I will use, and I can go into this, is being aware. And actually being aware of the person who's being aware so awareness of awareness is the thing that i have found that you know can definitely kind of get you into a tailspin if you intellectualize it too much but if you try to feel into it and that's what i've been really working on of like am i aware right now and what am i what is my awareness of and that brings me to a um dropping into the present moment in a way that nothing else really has and so Being present is really being aware, um, and also like I would say, focused, but in a wide range of vision. So I think like a five can get super focused on something, um, and so focused that they actually might lose the presence. But what I'm trying to think about when I say I'm really present is I am focused, like say my kids on their music lesson, but I'm, I'm I'm focused and present in a way where I'm aware of the whole room and the experience and whether they're enjoying it or not, not just how well they're doing. Um, And so um, to me, presence is a kind of a, a very soft gaze, soft feeling, but um, very much uh, focused on a, on a singular moment and not living in the future or in the past.
1: So I have a meditation coach uh, teacher and uh, I have a, You know, I try to have a daily 30 to 40 minute practice. That's my goal. And I probably achieve it maybe, you know, five, five days a week, hopefully five days a week. And so, but every week I get new directions. I got to report in on what I'm struggling with and what, you know, what I got to work on and uh, all this stuff. And he's pretty, he's pretty darn serious about, about my work. Right. And he'll say to me all the time, I'll say, well, I got really distracted. You know, my mind began to really do this. He goes, Ian, you know, uh, when that happens, when you're doing breath work, let's say, you know, he always go, he says, you have to zoom out. You, you mm. can't just, you know, if your attention is too zoomed in, it, it becomes yeah. so small that you actually lose awareness. So you actually have yeah. to zoom out So that you can actually be present in that moment and not so focused on the breath that you become like you have like an almost arthritic grip on the experience. You know what I'm saying? You just have to sort of let go. And then, so, you know, that's, you sound like you've been reading Buddhists.
2: I've been reading everything. (laughs) I mean, I really, um, you know, I loved, I mean, in high school, my favorite class was the philosophy of religion. Um, And then then when I went to college, I only lasted two years, but I was a philosophy major. Um, And so that really, um, I think, stoked the fire of curiosity around philosophy and many different religions. Um, And I feel that there's so much consistency, the more that I read across all of them um, in terms of what um, really allows us to grow closer to God and really have that Understanding and intimacy that I think um, so many of us on a spiritual path are seeking. Um, so, you know, I do really love the con, a few of the Buddhist concepts. I'd say the one that I'm probably most recently uh, connected to is that suffering is one of the paths to God. Um, and that, you know, the suffering is not something to be avoided, um, but to really be welcomed. Um, and to really, um, see suffering as a teacher. And so, you know, I've had some ups and downs over the past few years, and I can definitely point to some of the valleys that I've been in and the most challenging moments as the great catalyst, um, for my growth. And so, um, I really appreciate that, um, that one of the, of the noble truths probably more than any of the others.
0: So can I ask a question? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Anthony. yeah. I'm just wondering as a seven, because, uh, you know, the basic fear of the seven is to be in pain and yeah. now you have this revelation of the gift of suffering. Like how has that impacted your life as a seven? Like, what does that look like?
2: Well, I think this is what I'm, this is why I'm, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I ex- got exposed to the Enneagram two years ago, kind of went fast and deep into it and then kind of, some ways thought maybe I learned what I needed to learn and then now I've really come back to it and, and been just you know kind of really focusing on it again because I have gone through this phase of suffering and I've kind of come out and realized that like maybe for the first time in my life I didn't run from it. I didn't try to distract myself with a bunch of fun of activities. I actually you know, experimented with going totally sober, not drinking any beers or wine for a while, so that I could just feel every aspect of the challenges that I was going through. And I mean, specifically, I went through divorce, so um, it was um, a, a pretty traumatic, uh, start, but an actual beautiful finish. We did this mm. conscious uncoupling program. And now my my ex-wife and I are literally best friends. I mean, we we have so much fun together when we share the kids and we have a great relationship. And But it, it started with some real suffering and recognizing after seven years of marriage and lots of therapy that it just wasn't going to work uh, and that I had to make a change. Um, and so I probably for the first time in my life just felt it and just sat with it and didn't try to distract myself and so now that I've done that I'm really curious about how my I'm kind of you know beginning to mature in my seven type and leaning towards more some five tendencies um and um and I and I'm really grateful for that so it's um it's really been a, a beautiful kind of last year of my life in this journey
1: mm-hmm. Uh, our listeners have heard me say this before, but there are certain things always worth repeating. Uh, and that is that when the Buddha taught that life is suffering, um, there's so much confusion about what that word means, you know, yeah. fr- from people who haven't studied. Uh, and literally what it means is the feeling of not at homeness.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah. It's this not, feeling. That, not belonging.
1: Yeah, this feeling feeling, there's always a feeling of dukkha, this feeling that I'm not at home, I'm not at home in my skin, I'm not at home in the world. And actually, it's also a very Christian idea. Yeah, so for when, sure. When, yeah, like we're always looking for some far off country. There's something in yeah. us that's, that's longing and yearning mm-hmm. and wanting or pushing away, you know, or, but actually, I was listening to something right before this interview. It was a, a podcast called uh, Wild Heart, which is this Buddhist podcast. And the, the guy was talking uh, about how one of his teachers used to say that essentially uh, one of the statements that characterizes the human condition is, I want. And there's just mm. always, uh, everything begins with, I want, I want, I mm. want, mm. you know. And to yeah. me, that's a, that's, that's a very seven. It's almost like um, sevens have this constant feeling of deficiency, like something is missing. Something yeah. is something in this. Something in the next moment will have something that is deficient in this moment, and I have to race to that moment to find my at homeness.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting that I want in the sevens, and you know, one of the things I love about the enneagram too is that we can really only know the world from our perspective. And it really helps us understand that we are unique. I mean, if you divide the world by nine, at least eleven percent of us share uh, our number. And so it's I, I, I can now understand when people aren't don't have that like manic drive for more or wanting that I have. You know, everyone has a little of it because we have a little bit of all the numbers. But now I can really understand like why a two or a one just sees my, like, activity schedule as totally neurotic. Uh, and and to me, it just seems like the most natural thing in the world to, you know, mountain bike in the morning, play with my kids for three hours, climb a mountain, and then, you know, have a big dinner and a bunch of wine that night. Like, it's just – that to me is, like, just a normal day, whereas, you know, other friends of mine, like, are exhausted about noon. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's really fascinating. But, like I say – I have said is – when you really allow this work to like penetrate you and to sit with it, even though it's uncomfortable, like I really realized that like my most content moments are when I'm doing a quiet cup of tea in the morning and a, you know, a uh, compassion meditation or just sitting and watching the birds on the trees here in Jackson, like I actually think deep down I enjoy that as much as going surfing. And so that's really starting because I'm allowing that to happen and allowing me to not be a slave to the identity that I created the first 40 years of my life, both to the outside world and internally. Um, And that's when I think the work really starts to transform you you when you're curious about what it would be like to not just be the way you've been
1: yeah you actually stole a question from me and and uh that was that people not so much necessarily in the enneagram world although i guess so but but certainly uh people uh like Byron Katie, for example, or others that talk about the importance of doing the work. And whenever they talk, say the word work, it's always capitalized.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh,
1: And so what if anything, and I think you partially answered it, but I'd like to hear more about it, especially through the lens of the Enneagram. What does the work mean? Because I think it confuses people. They're like, "Sure, does that mean? What does that mean?" So,
2: it's a, this is—I'm so glad we're on Zoom. So, just below the "Be Present" tattoo, I only have a few tattoos. It's, it's going to sound like I have them all over my body. I think I have five total. But just under that, you can see here it says, "Do the work." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know what's so funny is
1: that I'm spending this entire podcast interview. Um <laughs> nailing uh, nailing tattoos <laughs> that you have that I didn't know about.
2: I love it. It just, but it shows the authenticity of the commitment, right? I actually got the do the work tattoo first and I got it after I did the Hoffman process four years ago. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with Hoffman yes. or not, yep. mm-hmm. but it is, um, it is an incredibly transformative seven day process uh, that really helps you understand the patterns uh, that you adopted from your parents and how those are Causing you to, you know, kind of live uh, a life of maybe not freedom because instead of consciously making decisions and being the person that you were, God you know, created you to be, you're living out so many of these patterns that you did to either receive the love or the attention of your parents. Um, and so, do the work out of the Hoffman process, which I think is exactly what Byron Katie's speaking about, and exactly people who are involved in and in really using the enneagram to transform is doing the work is it's one thing to obtain the knowledge, but it's another thing to commit to actually putting the knowledge into practice in your life and often a very uncomfortable way. Um, And so, you know, doing the work, I'll use a very personal example. So one of the things that I recognized um, through Hoffman was um, I received so much attention. I was the first child in my family and I was also the first grandchild. And my mom did not work at that time. And so her entire life and pride resolved around me, this firstborn. And I uh, experienced that very strongly. And so a lot of good came from that. I developed a lot of confidence in myself. You know, I had a feeling of always being loved and supported. But one thing that happened was I got so used, especially with relationship with women, of being the absolute center of attention, center of orbit of the world, that that created some patterns that were really limiting in the relationships that I could have going forward. And and one thing that I uncovered through a deep meditation in Hoffman, which I found to be almost uh, silly and actually uh, seems now embarrassing to share, but it's worth for the pointing out what doing the work means, is I recognized that it was so ingrained in my head that I actually didn't even feel comfortable. It wasn't that I liked being the center of attention, but I actually didn't feel comfortable in group settings until it was established that I was the center of attention. And the best example I've ever been able to give with people at this, and it's so ridiculous, is I love skiing and snowboarding. And so, you get on chairlift with four strangers every time you ride a lift to the top of the mountain. And I got so good at manipulating the conversation so that within two minutes of this ski lift, they would have to ask me what I do for a living in which I would be able to say, I'm the founder of Tom's in which they would tell me how great I was. And literally, it was, it was so unconscious. But once I did this work, it was so conscious that now every time I get on a ski lift, I do everything possible to not have them ask that question and so that I can just connect with them in other ways that don't monopolize the attention or the conversation. And that might seem like a small thing to some people, but to me, that was a real transformation in how I can show up and be present in group settings um, and how I can, you know, kind of disintegrate this need to always be the center of attention because it's fine sometimes, but it was also probably uh, really limited my ability to connect with people in other times. And so that's an example of what I would call doing the work is taking a knowledge of something and then actually doing, implementing in your life, even when it's maybe uncomfortable or doesn't feel as good because that's where the suffering and that's a small amount of suffering, but comes to uh, a deeper connection to your true self.
1: So, Interestingly, and I don't encourage it all the time, but we can sort of draw, I would call dotted lines between types and certain pathologies, right? Mm, yes. So you, you could say ones, if you wanted to, were sort of at their unhealthiest, obsessive-compulsive personality disorders, and twos were histrionic personality disorders, and fours were borderlines, and fives were schizotypal, and I could go on and on and on, right? What are but sevens? narcissists
2: Narc- yeah okay totally yeah
1: uh, and and everyone goes no 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 it's the three who's the narcissist and i'm like no nope, mm. it's the seven because the seven really does have this need to be at the this not only at the center of attention the storyteller the entertainer yeah. the uh the person who um is is kind of bringing the sparkle Everywhere, you know the like the pixie dust. Yeah, you know, and then
2: that also creates what I learned, and this is an example of the storytelling and the ski lift. Again, is I think I did that because of the pattern and the need to feel comfortable, but also at some point, if you are successful as a seven, you almost feel responsible to bring the sparkle and the storytelling. Like, Mm. like I, in a sense, like felt almost a need to share my Tom story because I knew that they would be excited that they heard it from the founder and they would tell their friends. And it's, it's a, it's a really interesting thing because I think that, and so I would say it was a little bit, part of it was narcissistic, but part of it was also like, I think that sevens and other sevens I know we do feel kind of like a responsibility to entertain our host or, or make sure that everyone is having a really great time. So that's fascinating.
1: Yeah I, and to be clear I'm not saying you are a narcissist we we all are somewhere on the narcissistic continuum everybody's somewhere on the obsessive compulsive continuum everybody is somewhere yes. on the borderline continuum but narcissists do tend to be a little bit more florid you know they 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 tend to you know if here's dead center they're just a little bit maybe higher on a scale you know yeah somewhere up up around here and one of the things i want to encourage people to remember and this is true for all types that when a person is doing their work it it distresses people around them because you are interrupting the circuit of behavior that they have grown used to yes. for as long as they've known you yes. right
0: mm-hmm. yeah and
1: so the it's almost like well are you depressed today how come you're not talking as much how come you're not as funny how come yeah. you're not as this did you experience that from resistance from people at all
2: um in some ways yes but i also feel this is one of the great blessings of my life is that i have a really solid group of of it's actually about 12 guys that are we go on this big trip together every year. We're on like a daily text chain together. Like we are truly brothers in every sense of the word, even though we're not related through blood. And they have gotten to know that as much as of an enthusiast as I am, that probably what has um, signified, like like like, defined me as much as that over the last years is this word of being a seeker. And And so they – have been able to see that when I'm not playing out the traditional patterns and roles of the seven that they have gotten to know, that they appreciate, um, in a sense, the courage or the experimentation to be to do the work and to be different. So I really haven't had much resistance at all. And then, um, and I would say some of the people that are the closest to me, they actually are the ones that not even knowing anything about the Enneagram have regularly um, encouraged me to be more present, be more still, you know, really, you know, slow down. Um, And the best one of all is my five-and-a-half-year-old. He, uh, you know, about a year ago, he said, Dad, you're always rushing. You're always looking for the next thing to do. And I was like, whoa. Like, I mean, that is like exactly the, the work that I'm working on, um, and it really, I think, encouraged me to even take some of the uh, the wisdom from the Enneagram even that much more seriously. If a five-year-old can pick up on it without ever knowing about the Enneagram in the book, then there's deep, deep truth in there.
1: You know, um, one of the things that I've thought about, you know, we, we've assigned um, descriptors or actually the word would be signifiers right to each of the types and they really don't mean anything. Uh, different teachers use different signifiers. Um, sometimes for example, uh, sevens are called the epicures. They're not even called the enthusiasts, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, ones, uh, are called the perfectionists, but I've sort of changed their name to the improvers Mm. twos are, called the helpers, but I, I'm now started to call them the befrienders. Mm. And I, I do it when I, when I think they're healthy. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, like when you're not so healthy, you're the helper, but when you're really doing great, you're the befriender. Yeah. So when you're not very healthy, you're the enthusiast. Are you now saying to me that when you're in a good space, you're the seeker?
2: I definitely think so. Yeah. Mm. I like that a lot. That feels right to me. Yeah.
1: So maybe I have to sit down and do this for all nine numbers. You know, like <laughs> when you're not in a great space, this is what you're going yeah. And This is, you know, when you've kind of mo- transitioned into a place of awareness, of presence, of self-observation, developing an inner witness who can say, uh-oh, I'm moving in the wrong direction, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that that has a, a different signifier. I recognize the limitations of labels uh, and the, how they can sometimes be pathologizing in some way. But they are... They are a little helpful at some point. Oh,
2: I think they're so helpful. And I think that the way that I, you know, have told people that when you really know that you've nailed your number and that the Enneagram has the potential to really do some transformative work is when the, the, the label that has been assigned to you, that when you hear it, you really don't want to get rid of it. <laughs> So, like, I still love that I'm the enthusiast. So even though that's where I am when I'm not in my highest state, I, it's, it's really hard for me to see that as a negative still um, because I so much of my identity and my life and my joy at a certain level has come from climbing mountains, surfing big waves, you know, you know, you know, entering in highly charged romantic relationships. I mean, whatever you can, you can label it. And so it's taken time to really start looking at that and say, yeah, that was, that was level one of the video game. And that was a great level and it was fun. And I, I, you know, I always will remember that level, but I'm just, I'm going to get bored if I just play this level so in some ways, it's actually. I just thought of this. This is why I love podcasts. Is I feel like they're like therapy sessions. So I just had a realization that I don't think I've ever had because I just said it. I as a seven are afraid of boredom. But what's beautiful is now I see that continuing on in the pattern of the enthusiast could actually be boring. <laughs> so it's it, you know so this is the so. The, for, so acting out as the enthusiast and doing all these activities and wanting more and always needing the third glass of wine instead of being content with the first or the second. Just living that way autonomously actually feels kind of boring to me now Mm -hmm. because seeking and transforming and living with moderation and and, and purposely creating constraint in my life seems so much more exciting. And that's when I know that this work is really kind of taking taking hold inside me.
1: Mm. you know it's uh i one of my closest friends uh is a seven and uh he's he's a he really is a wall street legend I, I can't say his name because it's actually quite well known and i but but he is the most seven human one of the most seven human beings I have ever met in my entire life yeah and, and uh one time he said to me and I say this because you're mentioning romantic relationships and I want sevens to hear this uh he said to me one time he said knowing the Enneagram. He said, you know, I realized, I realized looking back that I actually didn't love, he's had several wives. He said, I I actually didn't love my first wife. I was just in love with the idea of being in love.
2: I, I can. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful.
1: Yeah. It was like, as if love were a fascinating new idea. Yes. Like, oh, it's a seven. Oh, An experience. It, it was a new experience, yeah. and it was gonna, it was fascinating. And uh, of course, it wasn't conscious, but but he confused the experience with the person.
2: Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Or or tried to just fit a person into the experience he wanted to have, and mm-hmm. if that person willingly uh, went into that, that's that's it that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's uh, let's take a turn for a second. Sure, um, people tend to stereotype sevens as you know air quotes the uh the fun people yeah um but there's there's and I by the way have a seven son you you remind me very much of him he's (laughs) uh 22 years old and and you the two of you if I put the two of you in the same room I'm afraid of what what might happen to the universe Uh, (laughs) but but you're you're you are sort of stereotyped not typed stereotyped as the fun people but there's a serious even very dark side to sevens that doesn't get talked about very much mm. right and i'm just curious how the dark side manifests itself in you if in fact it does
2: hmm. you know i wouldn't say i wouldn't use the word dark but in opposite of being the fun person, I think what manifests in me is um, the real need for like stillness and contemplation. Um, and so while I, and maybe earlier in my growth, would be seen by my friends as a person that always organized the party or the adventure or whatever. Now I think what they're seeing me is that when I get the group together, I want to take it kind of deep and heavy in a way that actually makes people uncomfortable pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that I will talk about things that are, you know, potentially taboo at a dinner party now, versus just wanting to talk about bullshit and, you know, have fun. And so I think that's part of me understanding that I am kind of maturing and even moving more towards a five maybe, um, where I'm much more interested in kind of, um, I wouldn't use the word dark, but, but deep and real and hard conversations than I used to be, and that goes back to the question about avoiding pain. Um, if I kind of really am in a good place and have kind of breathed a little bit and calmed my nervous system, I actually really enjoy a hard conversation. And this is happening now that you know I have uh, an ex-wife who I'm very very close with, and you know we're co-parenting week on week off with the kids. We live in the same town. Um, you know, we're both starting to date other people now, like there's some hard conversations that are happening. And before I think I really would have wanted to avoid those or get through those quickly or rush the conversation. And now I actually kind of savor it. Um, and maybe a kind of a dark way because I know that, um, there's so much growth and, and, and real relationship that's being built by being willing to, feel some pain, feel some insecurity of her or myself, Um, you know, feel the perspective of the other person where before I think is a seven, I would just try to, um, you know, manipulate or argue or, you know, um, rush through the conversation so that I could just get through it as fast as possible. And now I'm actually willing to really sit in it. And I think that's part of that, you know, maybe using the word dark, but I would just say more seriousness of me. I don't I'm okay that that's not going to be a fun conversation, but yet I still might look forward to it.
1: I'm fairly certain this is true. The Latin etymology of the word suffer means to allow.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, um, that's beautiful.
1: And so mm. I think what seven struggle with when they're not mature, when they're unevolved, when they're unskillful, is they, they struggle to allow suffering mm. conversations. Um, Suffering experiences, but it is curious to me. For example, with my son, uh, my son loves classical music, mm. and he loves uh, actually uh, sound scores to films, like mm. you know, like scores. Sure. And um, one of the, the things that, that uh, he, he loves to do is listen to very sad, melancholy scores. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he just gets off on it. And you think that, you know, he'd want to be listening to like old, old cuts of Wham. Yeah, you know? sure. But, in, but, but instead, he's listening to Elgar's Nimrod. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like he's, Interesting. he's, it's very curious for a seven, I think, you know. Okay, hold on one second. That was supposed to be waking me from my nap yesterday. <laughs> Apparently, it was going to be a 24-hour nap. That
2: wow. Well so, up. you know, nothing happens by chance. So, this is, I think, a great for any sevens out there um, listening. So, I doubt there are very many sevens that have ever taken a nap because <laughs> – taking a nap or even sleeping nine hours a day seems like you're missing out on something, right? And so I have found just in the last couple of years, the absolute, almost divine experience of napping. And it's like, this is like doing the work. Like actually, when I go on vacation now, I will try to take a nap every single day, even if there's the greatest surf in the world or all my friends are playing beach volleyball. And I mean, people, you know, think it's crazy. They're like, you're going to take a two hour nap and we're like in Tahiti? And I'm like, yes, like you can take a nap anywhere. And I'm like, I know, and I should. And it's just this amazing thing. And so I think there's some some real experiences That sevens can do. So I'll say the other two that I have found that'd be really fasting is um, fasting. You know, doing like a five day. I love to do like what I call a fasting mimicking diet, where I only consume about 800 calories. It's usually about like an avocado, some spinach, and a few macadamia nuts for the entire day. And um, doing that for five days and feeling what it's like to not get more. And, to, and then to see that your body actually, my body comes alive in a beautiful way through fasting. And that constraint is something that mm. I actually, going back to like this dark place, I like to look forward to fasting now. I do it three to four times a year. Um, and then the other thing is, is uh, if you are a drinker, um, but, you don't, but drinking you don't associate as like a problem, is actually doing sobriety challenges. So I do 30 days of full sobriety two or three times a year now. And I always don't want to do it. I'm always like pissed at myself for telling all my friends I was going to do it. Last last October, I did this whole sober October on Instagram and got like thousands of people to do it with me. And then I was like pissed at myself on day three. But by day (laughs) ten, I was like, I feel amazing. This is great. And so, what I would say is find opportunities to force constraint and moderation in your life and. It will always be something you don't feel comfortable with, but a day or two into whatever it is, you're gonna you're gonna just your 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 soul just lights up, and so um, those are three things that I found are, are incredible practices that I would say all sevens could benefit from.
1: Well, you've given sevens a, a tremendous amount to think about, and now we're gonna have a conversation about something that I'm really fascinating in. Okay, uh, in part because I've done a lot of reading about it uh, and. Uh, it's something that um, it actually fascinates me from a therapeutic standpoint, but mm. not necessarily one that's not from a spiritual standpoint. And that is that you you're funding the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins University. Yes, and and I want to know where that idea emerged from.
0: Sure.
2: Um, well, the idea really emerged from. Uh, I, a couple of, I guess, a confluence of events in my life. Um, so one of the events in my life was I was going through a challenging time back in 2016, 17. I had sold um, half of Tom's. I stepped down as CEO. I, I, you know, we had our first child. I was feeling um, a little bit rudderless in terms of my purpose. I wasn't working, you know, as much as I used to, um, and and I just kind of, for the first time in my life, felt a little bit depressed, and um, and I was kind of trying to figure out a way to snap out of it, and I did not want to go on antidepressants. Um, I just I, there's something inside of me just didn't feel like I wanted to sign up for something that potentially I could become dependent on, um, and so a friend of mine said, you know, have you ever you know, tried any psychedelics, um, you know, specifically psilocybin and ayahuasca. And I said, no, I've never done drugs in my life. And they said, well, we don't really call them drugs. We call them medicines. Um, And if done in the right therapeutic setting, um, they can be incredibly helpful in kind of opening up um, people and getting them out of a potential funk. And so I went down to South America um, in Peru and I did ayahuasca. And uh, it was an incredibly powerful experience for me. I mean, I've always had a deep faith uh, in God and connection to Jesus, Um, but this took it to a level that no reading Richard Rohr ever could do. Um, I mean, it was truly transformative. Now, I want to say for listeners who are listening really quick, I would not recommend your first experience to be ayahuasca. I mean, there are many other smaller steps to take. I would start with uh, a sil- going to South America and doing psilocybin, which is also known as magic mushrooms, um, in a therapeutic setting. Um, and you might never even need to get to ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is like you know, having knee surgery when all you really needed was physical therapy. So I, w- I just wanted to always want to say that. But I did have a great experience. Um, and then that opened my just curiosity, my seeker in me, to want to understand what was, what, how this could be helpful to people. And, and that led to watching a bunch of documentaries, reading a bunch of books, uh, really connecting with my dear friend, Tim Ferriss, because I, I, I you know, uh, remembered him talking about this. And so we had some long dinners and talked about his experiences. And ultimately it was Tim that said, hey, like as a philanthropist and as someone who wants to address some of the mental health challenges in our country, there is, in Tim's words, a historic opportunity hmm. to be a part of a few different donors to potentially move this uh, to the place where it becomes legal in the United States in the therapeutic setting. And they can help people with a host of issues from the opioid crisis to depression, to you know, uh, end of life uh, fear um, and anxiety and stress. And so I saw it as a incredible opportunity to put philanthropic dollars on something that was truly cutting edge. Mm -hmm. Now, also at the same time, and this has led to my new company that I launched in March, which is called Made For, is I also found that a psychedelic experience, while it can be transformative, is very hard to integrate long term into your life. And so beyond having that experience, I started meeting with a neuroscientist at Stanford named Andrew Huberman. And Andrew Huberman um, really opened me up to this idea that there are ways to change our state of our brain from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And specifically, the best ways that he has seen that happen was through the adoption of new positive habits and practices from a physical and mental perspective. And so I ended up then going on this journey, which was two years long um, and beautiful, where I met with top scientists from Harvard, Stanford, all these universities that were studying these, what I would call keystone habits that the people who are you know, reported as flourishing and really thriving the most in society do a lot of. And during that process, I also met my business partner, Pat Dossett, who was a Navy SEAL for nine years. And after being a Navy SEAL, he really um, developed a fascination of taking some of the amazing uh, training and access to habits and practices that the SEALs got to, you know, kind of everyday people because he really has this huge heart of gold and wanted to help eliminate a lot of the self inflicted suffering that we experience just living in this modern age. And so, what was so fascinating is, and I love talking about this because my suffering. My, you know, you know, kind of diagnosis with mild depression led to two of the most profound experiences of my life. One, having an experience with psychedelics, which then led to me becoming a major donor, both in John Hopkins and the MAPS organization, uh, which I think is going to have a huge impact on, you know, these 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 real uh you know, challenges that we have in our country. And then the second thing on the totally end of the spectrum led me to really, from a scientific standpoint, understand how basic habits and practices, when taught in a very different way than we've tried to learn them, can actually be sustained and change people's lives, which led to the company made for that I'm spending all my time on now. So um, it goes back to this theme we talked about, it that suffering can bring so much transformation creativity etc uh into our lives
1: and i'm assuming that people can find out about made for made it's right?
2: actually i wanted to buy that domain but we could only get get made so g-e-t made for.com.
1: check it out all yeah. right well um uh, this has been an amazing conversation man i've really mm. enjoyed it um it, it's brought me a lot of uh joy and um uh a sense of Vitality and mm. uh, sort of—it's actually the word I guess I would give—is renewal, you know, mm. to to the day. And uh, so I really would like to to thank you for that and for all that you've done, for all that you're doing, and more importantly, for all that you're becoming.
2: Well, thank you. And this is—I was really looking forward to this podcast because I knew it would be very different than than some of the other ones I've done, um, but. But I think as I went out to get a glass of water, you told one of my colleagues, "I was like, this is the most fun I've had in a podcast in a long time," uh, because I and I said because I think I'm actually learning more from the hosts than they're learning about me. So <laughs> I, I I appreciate the time that you've given me and how some things clicked during this hour together uh, that will continue me on my on my path. So I really appreciate it.
1: Well. Thank you, and I I hope you'll come on again. I trust that in a year from now, we'll have an entirely different conversation with all new kinds of material to talk
2: about. For sure, for sure.
1: Typology listeners, once again, we love you. We're grateful for you. We're thankful that you have chosen to come on this journey of self-discovery with us. And uh, remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everybody else is already taken. Until next time.